This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Matthew Pell, Associate Professor of History at Augustana University. His book, The Making of a Working Class Religion, published by University of Illinois Press, is the topic of this show. Pell has given us a rich and deep study of working class religion in Detroit, beginning with the growth of industrialization in the 1910s. He examines the religious consciousness and attitudes towards work and the workplace in a diverse population of ethnic Catholic immigrants, African-American Protestants, and Southern-born white evangelicals that migrated to the city. Across religious affiliation, working-class religion featured emotional expressiveness, belief in supernatural forces, and held the sacred nature of work in the face of dehumanizing industrial conditions. Religion as individual expression and a site of social solidarity was in a dynamic relationship with the rise of labor unions across race, ethnic, and religious lines. Hale highlights the tensions between clergy, workers, industrialists, and union leaders in the meaning of work and religion and the practical application of social justice. The New Deal and the decline of unions replaced class-conscious religion with a race-conscious religious culture. Here's my conversation with Matthew Pell. Now let me introduce you to the author, Matthew Pell. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for sharing our thoughts with our audience. Before we get into your book, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and how you mm-hmm. came to write The Making of Working Class Religion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, in terms of uh, where I'm at right now, um, I'm an associate Professor of History at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, in all of the small world circumstances, I actually grew up in Sioux Falls, which has <clears throat> very little higher education. Uh, you know, Augustana is pretty much the only game in town. And I left when I was 18, thinking I would become a filmmaker, and went to film school for a while, and lived here and there. I lived for a while in the West, um, in Montana, and then in Minneapolis, um, and then I slowly got more and more interested in history, actually, after I had finished my Bachelor of Arts at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I really got interested in the question of labor and working conditions. And I just became really interested in, I guess what I was really interested in was the fact that I had never really been taught that much, uh, that work and labor had a history, that it came from someplace, and that uh, there might be reasons 
that people's working experiences were the way they were. Um, it sounds it's very naive to say retrospectively, but at the time it kind of hit me as kind of the force of a revelation and I wanted to know more about it. So I went back to graduate school, got a master's degree um, at Utah State University, and then went to graduate school for a PhD at Brandeis in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I've been in Augustana since then, so it was this sort of strange uh, full circle homecoming for me going back to Augustana. Um, and in the meantime, I wrote uh, the dissertation, which became my book. Okay. And now, so why uh, religion? You talked about labor, but you didn't talk yeah. about the religion aspect of it. I, you know, I guess that it came from, it doesn't come for me from a, a personal place of belief or theological conviction or, or, or anything like that. Um, I would, I would say per, my personal worldview, I just would describe as secular humanism. Uh, but I was raised in a pretty Catholic family. Um, and I guess it was probably being raised in a Catholic family going to Catholic school, that I just assumed that religion was a part of life um, for ordinary people uh, in a way that structures family, in a way that structures education, in a way that structures identity. Um, so I guess I just kind of went into it assuming that religion was was important to lots of people. And I think the other thing that, that the question that I had probably coming from that background was I wanted to know whether or not there were ethical or moral instructions or ethical or moral ways of being that talked about economic issues that how had that developed over time right had these two things been completely separate phenomenon that had developed um, in isolation from each other that didn't seem to me to be very credible and I wanted to know how Ordinary people made sense out of moral religious teachings and could apply it to their everyday life, particularly their life at work. So that's well, that was kind of the the, 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 the the butt of the idea. And then from there, it was just a matter of, you know, there's a lot of luck involved <laughs> in writing the book. You know, you read the right article or you find the right footnote or you, you see the right source or something like that, and all of a sudden things start to click. And that was very much what happened for me. I read I read a secondary source, um, which was a very good piece by a historian named Steve Rossworm um, on this uh, this group called the Association of Catholic Trade Unionists. And he had a footnote in this article where he mentions that uh, in Detroit, the archdiocese had created a series of labor schools. And he mentions in this footnote that, that they did surveys of their students. And this set, just set off huge alarm bells for me. I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> this is what I want. I, I want to know what were those people thinking? Like, I, we know more like what the priests were saying. We know what the ministers were saying. We know the social gospel. What I thought we don't know are the lay people, the people that are supposed to be actually receiving this and then going to work and putting these two parts of their experience and identity together. And when I saw that footnote, I thought, aha, there is a source out there. And so that was the first trail that led me further and further into Detroit. Yes. And that's the next question I was going to, why Detroit? You picked yeah. a, a Detroit and actually the Detroit that you portray is a very vibrant 
uh, place, not much like what we think about Detroit today. It's very no. lots lots going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me, uh, tell us about the urban environment of Detroit for the period of time that you're talking about. Right. So this period is from roughly World War One through roughly the end of the 1960s. I kind of think of it as the story of three generations. Uh, of an initial generation of mostly migrant people, people migrating either from Europe or from the South, because Detroit was an extremely multi-ethnic polyglot place um, and a place in the 1920s that was, uh, I think, kind of think of Detroit in the 1920s as the way we kind of think of Seattle in the 1990s. Like, it's not just the big boom town that there's lots of new industries going on, but it's the boom town that seems to represent the era, right? So if we think of Seattle in the 90s, we think of Starbucks and Microsoft and Nirvana and this type of stuff. Um, I think the same thing would be true in the 20s. Detroit was kind of the center both of a lot of economic activity and a lot of urban growth and also kind of the center of the imagination because of the Ford assembly line and the creation of this sort of mass consumer capitalism, consumerism that was coming out of Detroit. Um, but it, and it was a place that drew lots and lots of people. Uh, this was the th- one of the things that most surprised me. It was just how, how very diverse the city was and how overwhelmingly Catholic it was. I really didn't know that Detroit was as much of a Catholic epicenter as it was until I started doing this research. I didn't know that either. It's interesting because you also have uh, the the working class that you describe is made up of a lot of Catholics, African-Americans who tend to be Protestants Mm -hmm. or some other sect that's Mm -hmm. not Catholic, and Mm -hmm. southern-born evangelicals who migrated to Detroit to work in these factories. And we're mostly talking about, seems like you were talking mostly about the auto industry and the all the manufacturing that surrounded the ma- mm-hmm. the auto plants. Right. And so this was a huge period of, of growth for the automobile industry. So they needed a lot of labor. So people are coming coming in to do this. Yeah, that's that that's exactly right. And it it's um one of the the, the figures that I remember, I didn't find this myself, this was in a secondary source. Um mentioned that through the like the 20s through the 40s, something like 80% of all of Detroit's economic activity, was it wasn't all concentrated in the big factories. It's the dozens and dozens and dozens of subsidiary companies, uh, glass factories, steel factories, you know, places that make a certain kind of screw or a certain kind of glass or a certain kind of rubber or something like this that then get put into the supply chain. So it, it was everything from what we think of as probably the stereotypical big factory Detroit, like Henry Ford's River Rouge plant, which in World War II could have 90,000 people working in it, all the way down to more mid-sized factories, down to the dozens and dozens and dozens of, of supply chain uh, businesses that were kind of spread throughout the city. So what kind of environments were these in- industries, uh, these factories? <clears throat> Well, from what I can tell, um, the refrain that I saw over and over again was that Detroit was um, a very unlovely place. <laughs> Everybody kind of complains about how ugly it is. Um, they're drawn. It, it is really, it's really described as a city that is just running on the, the chasing of profit. And um, people go there because of that energy that there's a certain kind of energy that people have when they're being very industrious and they're trying to make a, make a way for themselves. Um, but it seemed fairly denuded of, 
um, a lot of the kind of urban beautification that other cities talk about. So this raised an interesting paradox for me because, of course, I'm talking about religion and spirituality, and I'm talking about people that are building religious environments in a place that they're all, all otherwise describing as being pretty uninspiring. So it seems like the churches, maybe, or the rituals in the churches were sort of the only uh, art, artistic or creative or expressive spaces. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were the only ones, but I think that they were... The thing about the religion, that, that at least that I make this argument in the book, it, it was able to both give people meaning in their new place and keep them connected to their old place. So whether they're coming from Alabama or from Poland or from Mexico... Um, religion was both a kind of a, a link of continuity to the past, but it was also something that was being recreated in the city um, in relationship to these other religions and these other people and this working environment. So I think it kind of has a double significance because it gives you a sense of ritual and meaning and purpose in the factory, and it also gives you a sense of ritual and meaning and purpose in relationship to your ancestors and your family. Now, because you talk about uh, connection to your ancestries, uh, you're talking about the ethnic, the ethnic nature of the Catholicism and the religion. In other words, these mm-hmm. were ethnic parishes. Mm-hmm. Italians. Right. Or- I would say that I would say the same thing about the Southerners. I mean, I think right. that the Southerners also are very much. They see what they're doing as Southern religion, very much so. Right. So, and what was interesting to me was the fact that these. Uh, Working class people took the initiative to build schools and churches mm-hmm. and fraternal organizations, which is you, you, we usually associate that kind of institutional building as being an activity of the middle classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's a and I, I thought that was really interesting. We don't think of working class people as being institutional right. building people. Right. Yeah, I think that was just the uh, demographic reality. Um, the city it was a working class city. There was, I mean, to be sure, there was a particularly from like the 20s through the 60s, the period that I'm talking about. Uh, Detroit had a very prosperous middle class, uh, largely um, mainline Protestant middle class. Um, and they certainly were institution builders. They built lots of the old historic churches that are still there in downtown Detroit, like Central Methodist or St. John's Episcopal, these kind of very impressive, stolid downtown urban churches. Um, so they were there, but if you were uh, the Catholic Archbishop or if you were uh, a, a minister of African Americans that are a generation removed from sharecropping, you don't, you don't, you have no choice but to appeal to working class people and to convince working class people to support you, to support the organization. And yes, I, I, I do make the argument that I think it's very telling that these people choose to support these organizations and not just to support them monetarily, but to support them um, with with their time and their effort, you know, filling all sorts of voluntary institutions and choirs and mission boards and mother societies and et cetera, et cetera. So you talk about religion being a consciousness that could help create a sense of peoplehood. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Most of these people sound like they're kind of displaced in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. In other words, immigrants and people from the South who come up, they're sort of displaced. And this, yeah. 
So how does religion help them do that? Well, I'm glad that you raised that issue because this is one of the terms that I was really kind of focused on while I was writing it. And so I think I'll explain it a little bit. This notion of religious consciousness or religion as consciousness. One of the things that I was really aware of while I was writing this is that um, I did not want this to turn into the kind of book where religion is simply treated as either an institution or as a kind of um, cipher for something else. I wanted I wanted to talk about the way religion was experienced and lived, and that meant dealing with a, a kind of in, interiority within the laity itself. Um, now, that's very difficult to do. I mean, it's up to the readers to determine whether I did that or not, but I realize that, that that's a very difficult thing to do because, I mean, even – even if you're married to someone and you and you live with them, you don't always know what's going on in their head. So to get into the heads of people that are sort of removed by culture and time and have have left scattering sort a scattering of sources, it, it, it's I, I I'm saying off the bat that was sort of a tall order, but I do want to clarify, I was very deliberately not trying to reduce this to either here are some churches and what's going on in the churches or. They're identifying as Catholic or evangelical or whatnot, but what that really means is that they're going to vote this way. I, I really wanted to get at the the, the interior the interior experience, um, and part of that experience, I think, is the tension between defining yourself as an individual and defining meaning for your own life, and placing that within a larger community of believers. As I really think that. The, the sense of community is is really critical to, to these people. I think that they needed sources of what sociologists would call social capital. Um, and I, I think that um, the social capital was really important in allowing these communities to sustain. So there's a kind of a balancing act that I think they're trying to strike between the religion as, as it operates for me as a person in my life, and also the way I can then express that in the form of a community. And that's where I start to get into the language of peoplehood, because I think the communities that they form, they start to think of themselves as groups of people that have this sort of religion that in which religion can define what that means to them. Now, where the churches at this point, particularly uh, the Catholic churches, I'm thinking, uh, segregated by class? In other words, were there parishes that were middle class or affluent, and then there were parishes that were poor, mostly poor people, or were the parishes pretty mixed in terms of class stratification? That was fairly difficult for me to tell. There were some cases where it was seemed a little bit clearer than others. Um, <clears throat> certainly, if you were in a downtown parish uh, like... Um, uh, Holy Trinity, which becomes a, ma- a major center of social work and activism because of its pastor, uh, Father Clement Kern, or a place like St. Leo's, which was a downtown parish, which becomes the first sort of self-consciously integrated parish. Um, those certainly are very working class congregations by by the time affluent people start to move out of the, the, the center of the city. If you're in the Polish Neighborhoods, the areas around the city of Hamtramck, where a lot of Polish immigrants live, and there are dozens of Polish churches there. Um, most of them are working class, not all of them. Um, it's a very, it's a tricky, tricky thing because 
if you look at, uh, and I've, I've reproduced some of these photos in, in the book, there clearly seems like there's an aspiration for middle-class respectability in a lot of these places. People dress really well. They act really seriously, you know. Um, even the African-American churches that have a reputation for, like, emotional extravagance, like, people still show up dressed really nicely, you know, and they think that they're behaving appropriately. So it, it, it is a very difficult question because there are these aspirations toward middle-class identity, um, but it's clear that outside of this parameter, y- you wouldn't necessarily identify them as middle-class. Right. So in other words, right. they could be working in the uh, on the line, the factory line, the production mm-hmm. line during the week, uh, which wasn't very glamorous, but mm-hmm. on Sunday they pulled out their Sunday best. Right. Yeah, that does seem to have pretty much universally been the case. Okay. I want to ask you about... There's a there's a built-in tension early in the book about there's an ambivalence regarding the connection between work, industrial work, and religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, does religion provide meaning to that industrial work, or does it just act as a soft sort of kind right. of uh, a comfort for right. the wretchedness of the rest of the week? In other words, you have right. a horrible week, but then on Sunday you can go and feel a little bit better about what's happened to you. Right. Can you talk about that? And, and and some people capitalized on that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a way to sort of say religion's not doing anything for people. It's just making them, mm-hmm. you know, kind of passive to, right. to accept the conditions that they have to deal with during the week. You know, this is an argument that was played out both in the primary sources. I mean, this is an argument that played out at the time, and it's an argument that plays out in secondary sources. So this is not by any means a, a new argument that I'm highlighting here. Um, so I guess here is the contribution that I think that this book makes to that, is to try to say that religion is not a silver bullet to solve social problems. But over the course of the 1930s and 1940s, there were sort of small clusters of workers within all three of these communities that I talk about, within among the ethnic Catholics, among the African-Americans, and among the southern-born evangelicals, that all start to form um, a, a, a language, a ritual, and some organizations to talk very directly about what it means to be a working-class believer and about how they can use um their religious organizations and their religious belief to act in the world to, for instance, build a stronger labor movement or to have a more responsible government or these types of things. So it seems to me that at least among this stratum, which maybe we would call it a vanguard, maybe we would call it, um, I don't know, maybe like an elite within the working class or a particularly um, inquisitive or curious group of workers, but for them, it certainly seems that religion is not just a uh, an opium um, and it's not just something that you get at the end of the week. It's something that they were really trying consciously to incorporate into their lives as workers, which meant they would be good union members and good citizens and good Catholics, evangelicals, what have you. And you also have on the other side, you've got people using religion as a way to speak against the unions also. Right. So a religion could cut both both ways, right? It could be used to undergird uh, labor movement, or it could also be used to sort of 
uh, demonize it. But that's why that's why I think you can say it's never it's never stable. It's never a stable silver bullet for a social movement because it's so malleable. It's so it can be uh, adopted for so many uses and ends. Um, and I, I mean, I was thinking a little bit as I was writing this about contemporary debates, particularly among w- within the left, about like how much of an F outreach should there be to relig- to religious movements? Because clearly, for a long time, conservatives have figured out a way to harness religion to politics to some type of activism. And there's been lots of discussion, I think, in the in leftist some leftist circles. Can we do the same thing? And um, I guess part of what I was thinking as I was writing the book was, yeah, sure, you can try, um, but this is not the, the ground. This is not a stable ground that you're going to build that kind of a movement on because it's it, it can shift so quickly and it can be adopted to so many multivariant purposes. Right. Um, what we see, I think, in the 30s and 40s is a particular generational moment in which religion was especially well-suited to a New Deal-style civic vision. Um, but that's very uh, – it doesn't seem to last that long. Right now, um, there's a lot of tension in your book, throughout the book, between clergy, some clergy workers, mm-hmm. industrialists, and union leaders. Mm-hmm. And they're all – like you said, they're always shifting and moving, and they can go in a lot of different directions. And they're mm-hmm. all trying to – appeal to religion in some way uh, mm-hmm. and make it work for whatever cause they're, you know, the industrialists want to show how religion helps people be better workers. Mm-hmm. And uh, give me, uh, there's some examples in your book about some of the Ford initiatives to try to. Yeah. Yeah Ford, was certainly the, yeah. Ford was certainly the most famous, particularly with the African-American churches. Um, Ford was by far the largest employer of African-Americans in Detroit throughout the 20s and 30s. Um, so many African-Americans, I think, fairly rightly, saw Ford as their ticket out of a menial life of sharecropping in the rural South at, in Jim Crow states. So I can understand from their perspective why uh, why they would like Ford, even though they worked in segregated environments in the worst conditions and the worst jobs in the factories. From what they were coming from, they were still making a lot more money than they were making in the South. And even even just having cash money, I think, from the world that a lot of them came from was a kind of freedom and liberation that I think they hadn't had before. But what it meant was that Ford became the, the largest benefactor of select African-American churches, which then wound up working as almost uh, employment agencies. And so if you crossed the minister, you weren't going to get a job at Ford. And, and part of what Ford was thinking is, well, this is a way to forestall any unionization efforts among the African-American workers because they won't go against the minister and the minister will tell me who's a reliable worker and who isn't. And so um, it winds up becoming a yoke. By the, by the late 30s, early 40s, there are a lot of African-American workers who a generation earlier could handle that sort of quid pro quo. And by the time that the UAW, the United Auto Workers, is starting to really gather momentum and these people are have lived through a generation worth of horrible depression conditions in Detroit, really abominable conditions, um, they were less willing to tolerate that. Now, in your book, in the 1910s and 20s, you've got a booming auto industry. People are flooding to the city. And then the, the Great Depression 
hits mm-hmm. the city, mm-hmm. which basically almost puts the whole thing, stops the whole, the machinery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this has got to be a critical point in how mm-hmm. people look at work and yeah. how they look at religion and the relationship to work, because yeah. what they thought was going to be a stable mm-hmm. economic base all of a sudden becomes very right. unstable. Can you talk a little bit about what the reality of the the depression on Detroit and that and the and the workers. Uh, I mean, from every source that I could saw, it was pretty awful. Um, Detroit had through over over the first four to five years of the depression, something like fifty percent unemployment. I mean, the national unemployment high in nineteen thirty two is twenty five percent. In Detroit, is fifty percent, and if you're an African American man, it's eighty percent. Eighty percent unemployment. Uh, and they're living in, uh, particularly the African Americans, are living in deeply segregated housing, which report after report after report, most of this comes through the papers of the Detroit Urban League, which I looked at, um, were just not fit for human habitation. I mean, they were just tender boxes of disease, rat infested, entire neighborhoods of people from the city were saying should just be condemned and destroyed. Um, and you've got tens of thousands of people living there paying slumlord rents you know they're paying more than uh, better housing in other neighbors neighborhoods because they can't move so for african americans it was it was pretty bad and you have letters from the urban league actually even before the stock market collapses telling people in the south don't come here the labor market is too saturated you can't we can't find work for you and then it the bottom falls out and things become really bad um you have um one of the things that really surprised me was in the catholic newspaper there is no hint of the Depression until about 1935 or 6. No hint. If you read just reading the Catholic newspaper in Detroit, you would think that the most important issue was uh, the moral corruptibility of Hollywood movies. That was the single greatest theme in the Catholic newspaper. And the single greatest sort of animating uh, movement in Catholic, official Catholic Detroit was this, what was called the Legion of Decency, getting uh, Catholic patrons to sign pledge cards not to go to movies that were deemed immoral. Um, that was pretty stunning, because especially if you look then at some of the parish-level newspapers, um, there's one in particular uh, at a parish called St. Rose of Lima, which was a very working class East Side parish. And you could start to get from that paper that uh, parishioners like parishioners were not paying. They were not they were not tithing the way that they had before because they did not have the money. And it was very notable. This was about 1931-32, which is the absolute nadir point in the depression. And the pastor starts publishing notices in the local parish paper trying to shame the parishioners by saying, you have a moral duty to support your school and your parish. And then within a month, it ticks up, and you see these, the, the, the money coming in back into the parish. So people were willing to accept that. I mean, they were willing to hear that message, and they were willing to respond to it. But it is very notable. You look at the, like the, the basic official paper of the parish. It's really not until about 1936, at which time – you know, Roosevelt is in a second term at that point. You know, the New Deal, the first New Deal has already come and gone. We're already moving into National Labor Relations Act territory. From a historical perspective, this is 
way after the ship has sailed. Um, so it's, there's lots of interesting uh, uh, official text and subtext that I think you can see here. What about, let's talk about Catholic action and the Catholic worker and how it interacted with the, 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 the church hierarchy, mm-hmm. then the labor movement, and mm-hmm. the people. Can you talk right. about those, those two movements? Catholic action well, was more of an official movement of the right. church. Right. And the Catholic worker was more of an independent thing. Right. Um, uh, one of the big arguments that, that I'd make in the book, and I, I, I do, I, I feel that this is, I can support this pretty well. I really do think that the, the, the turn toward Catholic support in Detroit for the United Auto Workers, for the New Deal, for unionization, even for strikes, which prior to this had been, you know, the, the Catholic Church had said uh, workers should be able to form a union, but strikes are, you know, strikes are dangerous. They're even starting to support strikes by the late 1930s. I think that they do that because they have pressure from the pews, because I think that there is there are enough ordinary Catholic working class people that are basically saying, look, we're joining the unions and we're going to go on strike. And we don't want to have this sort of existential split that we have to choose our Catholic heritage or our identity as work or our livelihoods. But if you force a split, you know, we're, we have to survive. We're going to be in this union, but we would like to bring Catholicism with us. And I, I think that the laity forced the issue. And I think that the church is largely responding to the laity, which you see like in a lot of cities are then a handful of priests emerge who become sort of the, the leading edge of the Catholic action, the Catholic labor movement. Uh, they become the ones that say, okay, we need to found like an, uh, an archdiocese labor institute to create schools in our parishes to teach workers how to integrate Catholic principles with unionism. I think that they're doing that because some, a lot of Catholics are already trying to do that on their own, and the church feels, well, it's our job to instruct them, so they're already doing it, so we need to get involved here. Right. Let's, so, yeah, let's give them some guidelines so they'll at least stay, stay Catholic while they're doing it. Right. Yeah. So you've got, you've got this is in the 30s, the New Deal – Labor mm-hmm. unions are are getting more power because of the depression. That was mm-hmm. one of the things, that, and the New Deal sort of supported. Mm-hmm. So Catholic uh, people are joining labor unions, and they're affecting uh, the labor unions from the inside. Uh, can you? T- yeah. So then, it, but there's always in the back of everybody's mind there seems to be this fear of uh, communism. Mm-hmm. That these mm-hmm. labor right. organizers and leaders have are communists. Yeah, and talk about that. That was certainly a bigger scare for, for instance, the Catholics than for the African American Protestants. Um, but yes, um, absolutely, the Catholics had a long-standing fear of communism. Um, the Pope famously condemned socialism uh, decades earlier, um, the Catholic Church as an institution clearly saw communism as an existential threat to its very existence. Um, I think the reason the reason that they gave was because they said that communism assumes that humans are able 
of shaping the world according to their own destiny. And this is an act of ultimate hubris. This is an act of ultimate arrogance. And Catholic tradition is humility and obedience before God's law. So for a movement to actually actively remove religion from the equation, declare itself officially atheist, and then say man is at the center of everything, and human action can and will shape everything in the world, uh, it, it was just un, it could not be reconciled to the Catholic worldview. And so they saw it as uh, kind of the second coming of the Crusades in a way, you know, the, the great infidel threat to Christendom. So this presents a real problem because there are communists in the UAW. Some of the leading, most effective unionists in the UAW are communists. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, and even the ones that weren't communists, like the Ruther brothers, who become sort of the famous face of the UAW, Walter Ruther was not was an anti-communist, but spent time in the Soviet Union, worked in a car factory in Gorky in the Soviet Union, uh, kind of admired what the Soviet Union had been able to do in, in industrializing in the 30s, and always identified as kind of a socialist. So the Catholic options are um, identify with communists in the labor movement. No. Uh, denounce the labor movement. Well, you can't really do that either. So they have to find a, a, a third path um, that can accommodate labor unionism and can accommodate a measure of social justice type stuff, but not accommodate communism. So that's where a lot of the intellectual energy is at this time. And it's where, again, a lot of this is coming from lay people. Lay people themselves are saying, um, we don't want to be communists. We don't want a communist-led union. We want a Christian UAW. And I guess what that means to them is um, a UAW that advocates for a living wage that supports a family. I think that's the key to it. So they're and so they're also so they're turning to other arguments, and this is sort of I guess where the Catholic worker comes in or mm -hmm. Catholic action comes in, uh, mm -hmm. providing an apologetic, I would say, for mm -hmm. the Christian faith that still supports unionism. Right. I think the Catholic worker was more peripheral um, to what was the Catholic worker was almost a kind of boutique movement, I think, in Detroit. It certainly had a presence. It was kind of the earliest of the uh, lay movements to coalesce. But the one that really, I think, has institutional heft and presence and the most members, at least at its height, is this lay-led group called the Association of Catholic Trade Unionists, ACTU. And they pronounce it ACT-2, meaning it's not enough to just have faith and go to church. If you're really a Catholic, you need to act in the world. So your main way of acting is to bring Christianity into the, the UAW. Now, at this time also, um, well, in the 30s, it's a little bit waning, but middle class people who are embracing the social gospel mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. in the Protestant churches, right? Uh, a lot of those people were against unions. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, they were pretty so, so let's talk about that, uh, even though they were trying to reform society in a some better way. Right. Uh, they how did how do they work through that? Because that's a lot of. I, yeah, it is. I think I think what's I think it's really telling 
at the end of the book, when I get into the 1960s, I think comparing the attitude of Protestants in the 1960s to civil rights versus the attitude of Protestants in the 1930s towards labor is very telling. Okay. And I think that the key, I think that the key here is that Protestants were much more able to go all the way in on civil rights. I mean, for the, for the, I'm talking about the social gospel type Protestants. They were able to go all in on civil rights, I think, because they saw it as a clear moral evil and one that affected individuals. Whereas labor unionism dealt in collectives. As long as, as long as the civil rights didn't go into black power. Yes. Well, even then, I mean, in, in Detroit was a hopping place in the 60s. So even when it goes black power, you still see a, 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 a radical contention of white ministers uh, fully supportive of them. You know, of course, it polarizes and then some that were kind of in the middle leave. Um, but I think he, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's just a totally different tone to this in the 60s. Um, but I, I think that the, the Protestants of the 30s saw themselves as reconcilers and mediators. What they talk over and over again about is Christian reconciliation and that uh, a, a strike is based on hate and hate is rooted in sin. Right. So strikes. So then how do you say that a strike is not sinful? Well, obviously, unions need to strike if they're going to have any bargaining leverage. So the, the Protestants, the mainline Protestants in the 30s and 40s, they can't quite square that. Now, the one exception that I will mention who becomes this, this person who becomes a major player in the middle part of my book is the Southern Presbyterian named Claude Williams. And there's been a little bit written. Um, uh, Eric Gelman and Jared Roll were a couple of great historians. They've written about Claude Williams recently, too. Williams is the exception that proves the rule. Williams is a Southern, was born a Southern fundamentalist. He goes to preach the gospel in his early 20s. And he has a convert, you know, the, the, the conversion experience, the born-again experience is a sort of a key part of Protestant evangelicalism. Williams describes his born-again experience as a moment in which angels break out of the heavens and come upon him and show him that the true nature of sin is economic exploitation and racism. So his conversion is really to political radicalism. And he is a, he is a genuine radical. He is, uh, for a one time, a member of the Communist Party. He is organizing interracial unions. He nearly gets lynched many times in the South before coming to Detroit in World War II. He has no problem with the, the, the striking with the labor movement with the whole thing. He has a whole series of rituals that are that actually take traditional Protestant uh, hymns and rituals and sort of rewrites it to be almost kind of popular front pseudo communist hymns, basically, um, to organize uh, his group. But I think the fact that he is he is so singular, it shows you how little support that he had. And and the Detroit Church is. Drop him like a hot potato as soon as the war is done. There's another person who is sort of in his antithesis is Norris. Yes, right. Talk about Norris because I think he is an interesting character, and I think he represents a particular type of thinking that's the mm-hmm. opposite of, of advocating for labor unions and how deep he was in with uh, yeah, industrialist. This is uh, uh, J. Frank Norris. His nickname was the Texas Tornado. He was from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, style himself 
I think the, a good way to think of him is Norris is kind of the forerunner of what we might think of today as the modern independent megachurch builder. He was kind of a megachurch builder before there were megachurches in the sense that he did not want to be beholden or belonging to any of the Protestant associations that most groups were affiliated with, which for him would probably have been the Southern Baptist Convention. But he did not want to be beholden to the Southern Baptist Convention. He wanted to be the CEO and king of his own little evangelical empire. And when he notices tens of thousands of white Southerners moving from the South to Detroit in the mid-1930s, he sees an opportunity. So he winds up forming a double pastorate. He keeps his church in Fort Worth, Texas, but he opens a new church or kind of takes over a, a rundown church in Detroit called Temple Baptist Church in 1935. He has radio broadcasts. He has newspapers. He has outreach. And his church becomes a colony, basically, a colony of, of displaced Southern white evangelical um, Southerners, mostly from Kentucky, that want an anti-union, anti-government, literalist, fundamentalist message. And Norris and Williams become bitter, bitter decades-long enemies. Yeah, that, that, that little scenario, we talked about how many preachers were online and, and they were mm-hmm. on radio. I mean, they were on radio, they were writing. It was, there was a lot of uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and a lot of it is, I, I feel like there is a lot more going on than I was even able to document because of kind of references or asides in the sources that would mention this group or that leaflet or this meeting or something, but there's no institutional record for it. So I can't really prove where it is, but I feel that as much as I was able to find uh this newsletter or that organization or this group, I think there were even more out there because they were all, they were talking about these other groups, but you know, you need the records. Well, it seems to me that you, you talk about uh, working class religion sort of at its height, right before world war two. And then when mm-hmm. the war starts and then and the war ends, and then you have the cold war begins mm-hmm. that, uh, the threat of the, the threat of communism becomes so overblown that mm-hmm. uh, labor unions are just sort of <laughs> really mm-hmm. attacked and yeah. weakened, severely weakened. Mm-hmm. And what you say, I think, is the working class religion is something that came and went. Yeah. And what is what replaced it? Well, <clears throat> that's a tough question. Um, I think a lot of things replaced it depending on who you were. If you wanted to place yourself in the tradition of the social gospel, whether it was the middle-class social gospel of the progressive era or the working-class social gospel of the 1930s, if you wanted to place yourself in that tradition, increasingly in the 50s and by the 60s, you're associating with racial justice. You are looking at race as the fundamental issue, the fundamental injustice in American society. And the stuff about unions, the stuff about work, the stuff about class just starts dribbling away. Um, it's just not, it, it just kind of escapes the discourse. It escapes the imagination. It doesn't seem like, with a couple of exceptions, there's not a lot of 
specific attention paid anymore to the relationship between religious identity and working identity or religion and class. Um, and I think that's because, as I said, race it could be more applied to individuals, and there was a, a, a real sort of the shift in ethical and theological thinking at the time really focused on personhood and the dignity of individual people. And so I think that that was it was it was easier to say, well, you shouldn't discriminate against individual people because we're all as individuals in the image of God. And I think it was also consistent with the broader shift of American anti-communism. I mean, there was a fair amount of American anti-communism that said, at least in the liberal portion, that said we cannot allow the Soviets to use the racism in our society as propaganda against us. So we're actually being good, consistent, patriotic Americans and anti-communists if we oppose racism. You didn't quite have the same relationship with labor unionism because unionism had kind of come from this leftist background. It had come out of, at some level, out of Marxism. Um, and there had been and were communists in the UAW. So that was, that was a tougher issue to square. Yeah, it seems to me like in this, uh, the white uh, Southern uh, evangelicals really get up getting lost in this because they are not, uh, they're not black. Right. They still have an economic problem, but that's mm-hmm. kind of being put aside. Oh, your economic problem, that's not as important as this race problem. Mm-hmm. So that has got to feed some more animosity among the white Southerners towards right. black people. Well, I think, I think actually what is happening here and I'm thinking of some work by um, a scholar, uh, Darren Dochuk, and some other people. Um, I think the white Southerners are suburbanizing. I think uh, for in by the 50s, a lot of those white Southerners, if they could, they were moving to suburbs, and they were forming suburban congregations, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with the city anymore. I think they saw the city as... But are they moving up economically? Is that what's happening? Well, some of them, some of them are the ones, the ones that are the ones that can't get out of the inner city. That is, that is, that is. They do not leave a lot of sources. They do not leave a lot of evidence. The evidence that I found suggested that Southern whites and Southern blacks in the inner city in the sixties were pretty close together. They, they, were, they went to integrated storefronts. Uh, there are all sorts of stories about during the 1967 uprising, riot, whatever you want to call it, that Southern whites took part in it just as much as African-Americans did. Then, in fact, African-Americans and Southern whites worked in tandem during the uh, uh, coordinated uh, vandalizing liquor stores and these types of things. So the hints that are there suggest that the Southern whites that are really impoverished Southern whites in the city – living right next door to African-Americans, that they are fairly close together. I don't, maybe it's a rival, maybe it's like a, a friendly rivalry or something like that. But I think any of them that could get out went to the suburbs and started a new congregation and just looked at the city as it's going to hell. Okay. Um, all right. So what is, what is the, uh, now, you say in your book that the organizing principle of religion went from 
class-based to mm-hmm. race-based mm-hmm. In, in Detroit. Mm-hmm. This is what we're talking about here, right? So now all of now uh, churches are more, religion is more based on your race than it is based on your class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, guess, I think, again, I'm talking about the broader social category that forms the way people think about themselves. And I think that the, the social category that has the most political power, the most imaginative power, the most ethical power in the 30s and 40s was your class identity. That was kind of the source of the debate, the discourse. And I think in the 50s and 60s, that shifts to race. And race becomes kind of the broader political, intellectual organizing principle, which religion naturally um, responds to. And there's sort of, I, I kind of think of religion as kind of like cultural water, you know? It just sort of fills in the crevices. Whatever crevices emerge in a society, religion moves in there. So when class, when religion was defined more by class, would you say that, uh, I guess in the 20s and 30s, that uh, black workers and white workers uh, – even though there's, there was difference among them in terms of how they were compensated, what kind of jobs they were doing, that there was more unity. No, <laughs> no. So I, that, I think so that, even yeah. so, that doesn't really, that wasn't a unifying uh, factor. No, I, I think social unity. No, I think it allowed for a level of intellectual unity <clears throat> by the late thirties and World War II, so that everybody realized that the union would be good for all of us. Okay. That didn't necessarily mean that we're going to intermarry or we're going to live in the same neighborhoods. That meant, okay, we understand that our ministers are talking to each other. We understand that there is a kind of an ethical argument to be made for a living wage for everybody. And it's in all of our best interests to get behind this labor movement. And that's, that's the short little window. That's the short moment when working class religion works. I mean, you can almost date it from about 1937 to 1945. Okay. So what is a takeaway for the reader for your, for your book? What, what do you want the reader to take away? What is the main idea? Well, I guess the main th- – uh, okay, there, there's two things going on here. One is, like, what's the thesis of the book, and then, like, what's the real purpose or spirit of the book? And I guess kind of the purpose and spirit of the book is – um, I, w- I just want the reader to think about 20th century American history, particularly 20th century urban history, and realize that lived religion cannot just be excised from that. And I think that there is too much 20th century history, labor history, political history, and urban history that either says, well, there were some churches there, and they had this sort of institutional function, or well, there was some religion, but, it, but what that really meant is that they were voting this way or that way. And what I want to say is, no, that doesn't actually adequately get at what religion was doing for people, the way religion was actually animating these other things that you're talking about. You're missing the, the, the experience of the people themselves, that they did not discount these experiences the way I think a lot of scholars do. And I, so that's kind of the main take. Yeah, the idea yeah. that you can take religion and kind of set it aside. Right. And part of mm-hmm. it is, I think, uh, is a, a, some many scholars, not all, but 
are uncomfortable with dealing with religion because the language of religion, they're not familiar with the language, they're not familiar with the experiences. Maybe they've never had any of these experiences themselves. So it's, right. they see it as sort of strange and sort of otherworldly and not uh, their human experiences. Yeah, and I, again, I find this a little bit bewildering. Because, I mean, I've certainly had the experience and other religious peoples that have studied religion, especially American religion, have had this experience of people saying, oh, so you must be like a really serious Catholic. There, there's a sense that if you write about this subject, this subject alone, if you write about this subject, you must be personally invested in it. Now, that doesn't prevent white scholars from writing about African-American history. That doesn't prevent women from writing about men or men from writing about women. It doesn't prevent gay people from writing about straight people or vice versa. I don't know why this is the one category that scholars feel that they have to have a personal identification with or that they will be ascribed an identification that they can't then talk about. That's a really interesting point, but it also may be that some some scholars who I have, who are invested in religion uh, – have made it a point to say, I'm on the inside and I know because I've been in it and I right. have more authority to speak about it than you who are on the outside. So it's kind mm-hmm. of working both ways, you know. No, that's okay. Mm-hmm. okay, so thank you, Matthew Pell, for your time. Great, thank you. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.